Now we're going to do a scripture reading. And I'm sorry, Matt, I screwed that up. We changed the order and I didn't tell you, so that's my bad. <laughs> sorry, everyone. Beautiful. Let's take a moment of quiet and, uh, and silence to uh, prepare our hearts to receive God's word today. Our Father in heaven, we do trust you're here, you're in us, you're with us. Uh, you have called us into community with you and with each other, and we pray that you um, continue to form us to become the kind of people you want us to be. We trust that you have made us right with you. You've called us saints. You've called us your children. Uh, may you work in our lives and our hearts to form us to become who you've already made us. We trust you in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're doing our Advent series through the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas story in Matthew. And Joel kicked us off with that last week. And Advent is one of my favorite seasons of the church. It's a season of the church calendar when we look back and kind of rehearse the longing and waiting that the people of God had for God to act and move and fulfill his promises, which he did through the birth of Jesus. But as we look back and rehearse that sense of waiting and longing, for that time to come when the birth of Messiah would happen, we kind of are still waiting and longing for him to complete what he's already promised, what he's already done. And so we kind of recapture that season of posture of waiting and hopeful expectation that gives us room to lament that things are not as they should be if God really is king, but also live with hope knowing that one day he's going to make things right. And so that's actually the posture of the church at all times. And Advent is just a time to emphasize and remind us of that. And so, uh, in light of that, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I'll read it all the way through. It's about a clash between kings. We have King Herod and King Jesus, and a clash is on the way, and we'll get to talk about the true king, King Jesus, and the imposter king, King Herod. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will, become, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So as I mentioned, this story is a story of a clash between kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And so in this season of waiting that the church is always in, almost like a probationary period, where God is indeed king through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we still live in this time of tension where 
the presence of his enemies, of sin, Satan, and death remain. And so we're in this position of tension, kind of being caught between the promise that God is indeed king through Jesus and the fulfillment of that promise where he will finally set things right and restore all things and wipe out sin, Satan, and death permanently. And in the middle of that time, we kind of have this tension of trying to choose Jesus time and again instead of kind of being swayed to other kind of authorities. And so everything that we experience in life has that sense of that tension. So go to the next slide about the problem with the, with the authorities. So it, while we wait then, we are kind of in this tension where it's not always quite clear how we should live and what we should do. We are in this tension of living with a sense of suffering, of frailty, of weakness, and of sin. And in light of that, that kind of infuses all of our life with tension and with problems. And one of those problems is with authorities and how we relate to authority. And in particular, I think our, the church in our country has a lot of problems with authority, kind of can fit within two categories. The first problem of authority oftentimes happens when we, in our frailty and on our fear and in our insecurity as human beings, find ourselves wanting to have alliances with and allegiances to unhealthy or wrong authorities. That in this time between times where we wait on God to fulfill his promises and for Jesus to return and finally set things right, we face a very real sense of our frailty. We are vulnerable. Resources seem scarce. Our health seems insecure. It often feels like we don't have enough. We don't know what the future holds. And we look, we're tempted to respond to that frailty, not with worshipful dependence on God who gives us all things, but to find humans that will protect us. And so we may look and try to find human beings that make promises for, for kind of responding to that frailty or that lack or that insecurity that we feel. And there's no shortage of politicians, of media personalities, of Instagram influencers, of cable news commentators, of social media specialists vying for our attention in order to bring us to be in allegiance with or in alliance with them. And uh, I mentioned this two weeks ago, especially when we're talking about our temptation, the, Amer the American church's temptation to be in total alignment with certain politicians or political parties and it just totally collapse the church's mission with that politician's agenda. There's no sense and reason for an uncritical allegiance to any human being. But that is a temptation. And it's not just with politicians, it happens with pastors. I'm up here right now talking to you. You're all quiet in this room, and there's a person talking. That's me. And that can give a sense of false authority that I actually know all that I'm talking about. And I don't. <laughs> and we see churches will, will cling to, come on now. You've got to keep them comments to yourself, brother. You do, man. We both knew. You got, we got to support each other. <clears throat> There's a, a temptation to expect that a pastor to be like all things and everything. And some of you have been listening to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Silla, kind of details an experience of a, of a celebrity domineering, having all together pastor that took a whole church and church leaders to uphold and expect that he was far better and far more pure and far more holy than he actually was. And they protected, defended him, and kind of cling to and depended on him, sometimes in competition with what actually God wants. And so there's an unhealthy alignment, alliance with authorities, and then that creates all kind of abuse, right? 
Many of us have seen the ways that churches have harmed people, that church leaders have been powerful and harmed people, that politicians have harmed people, that people with positions of authority end up hurting people. And so this gets to the other side where it's like, forget all the authorities, I shall become my own authority. And so there's no shortage of temptation to do that as well. That's the second problem. Slide number two, my brother. Trusting no authorities and becoming our own authority on everything. So this thought is like, hey man, I've only seen abuse. Therefore, I can't trust anything out there that would claim to have any say. I would just go inside, discover what the real truth is, and only cling to that. The thing is, it's pretty impossible to function in a world, especially a modern world that's so complex, without some degree of needing to trust people. And so what do we have for that? Google. You can use Google to just mirror back what you want. There was a season when I used to run, and then I, I don't run anymore, man. I'm a grown man. I'm old. I walk. I walk now. I got my knees hurt. I don't run anymore. But there was a season when I used to run, and I would sometimes have a season where I wanted to want to run, and I'm like, Google, all the good reasons for running. And then, of course, I would find, like, there would be no shortage of experts on the Internet that are like, here's all reasons why you should run. And then I would have some knee pain and be like, why running is not good for the knees. <laughs> and Google would mirror back exactly what I wanted to read that day, which was not to run. <laughs> so there's no shortage of finding authorities that just scratch your ears and do as you want because we really would like to be the expert on everything. There's a great book that I read on this by Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise, which kind of says that there are good things in our culture of democracy and individualism, but those both give us the idea that everybody's opinion carries the same weight on all subjects, when it actually does not. And he kind of describes it, but listen to this quote that he says about that. He says, the fact of the matter is that we cannot function without admitting the limits of our knowledge and trusting in the expertise of others. We sometimes resist this conclusion because it undermines our sense of independence and autonomy we want to believe we are capable of making all kinds of decisions, and we chafe at the person who corrects us or tells us we're wrong or instructs us in the things we don't understand. And so we are caught in this predicament where a lot of human authorities haven't seemed to be who they should be and actually are worthy of more critique than just like uh, an uncritical allegiance to them, but also we can't just be our only authority. And so instead, we obviously need Jesus as our authority, and he will, as he calls forth a worshipful, true, submissive response to him, he will reframe how we engage and relate to other human authorities and even ourselves. And so I'm trying to navigate that as we read, and as we read, I'll kind of point out signs of the true authority of Jesus versus the false authority of Herod and how uh, Herod's false kind of impostering kind of authority is manifested in a lot of uh, human authorities in unhealthy ways around us. So we'll kind of navigate this tension together. So let's keep, move on to the, the first couple of verses. Start to show some signs of the imposter versus the true king. And here you can see in these first two verses that we have Herod. He's got the title king because he is responsible for the land of Judea. He's still under kind of Roman authority. They're the ones that are in control of everything. But they've taken Herod and have allowed him to kind of be ruler, and they have the title kind of king of the Jews. That's his title. But yet, these magi from the east, and I'll get to them in a second, they've come and asked Herod, hey, we've heard the king of the Jews is born. He's like, hang on a second. That's me. Who is the real king? And so Herod is obviously stirred by that. And so, but we already start to see some signs of Jesus being 
uh, a unique kind of king. This is the only kind of king we could ever want and hope for, and we start to see signs of that with these magi from the east. Some translations may talk about the wise men, the three kings. We sing lots of songs about them. So who are these mysterious magi people? The word originally means uh, the, the priestly class from Persia, but it ends up being used to describe different kinds of people that interpreted dreams, that were astrologists, that were interested in the moving of the stars and interpreting things and that kind of thing. We see signs of them in the book of Daniel surrounding the king. And so what's really interesting here, though, that now are like in Babylon around this time, what does the people of God, what do they think about people in Babylon and people in Persia? If you know the Bible well, they don't like them. Usually the Magi would be used pejoratively. Like there's not a, 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 a like for these people. That's like a point to say Matthew is, the, the church would not be looking to find Magi to be like a witness to Jesus. That does not help their cause. It's actually like they look bad, it looks bad. So it actually almost gives more backing that Matthew's telling the truth when he's like giving the Magi this heroic spot in his gospel to be like the first people to recognize Jesus as the true king. But that gets to Jesus being a special kind of king versus false imposters. Imposter kings and imposter authorities are very narrow. It's about them and people that look like them. And they're wanting to cast up walls and push people away that are not like them versus Jesus right off the gate before he's even started a ministry. He's a child, is attracting these strange Gentiles from the east that many Jewish folks would not have looked at to be authority on anything, that would not have counted as worthwhile people to include into the kingdom. They would like them out. There was a sense of Jewish nationalism rising at this time about being the true people of God, and everyone else is just going to die. But instead, right off the gate, we have these people from the outside being included in. And it kind of hints back to the Old Testament that all the promises of God, when he would come to be true king, it's king from the Jews, but not king of only the Jews. He was going to bring peace and justice and inclusion to the whole world. And right out the gate, even as a child, has a sense of openness of people that don't look like him. So that's already a tip as we're reframing how we relate to authorities. When you hear politicians and social media people, and pastors having an us versus them exclude that whole crowd over there because we are the only ones who are right. We want to tighten up all of our borders and not let anybody else in and not be included of anybody that's different than us. That's a warning that they may be driven by a different kind of way of having an authority and a different kind of way of building community and family than Jesus was. And so keep I'm highly that who has been born king of the Jews because that's going to come up here in a second. So that's one kind of sense of Jesus' authority as a true king versus the imposter is a spirit of openness to include those who would have been rejected and openness to welcome them in. It's a for all people kind of thing. All right, go to the next verses here. I'll skip to one. There we go. Insecurity and fear. So Herod, obviously, he's like, hang on a second, I'm king, but now you made this guy king. He's disturbed. Sometimes that word can be frightened, tremendously scared. He's terrified because he's another sense of a false king. He knows he doesn't all the way belong. He has a sense of insecurity and knows that the power and the wealth that he has could slip through his fingers. He's anxious. And so there's a sense of when under threat, he responds anxiously to control for himself. And so he's immediately terrified. And then it says that all Jerusalem with him was terrified. Now, why would Jerusalem, the people, be terrified because King Herod was terrified? 
Is it because they like King Herod and they're aligned with him? If you read the story of God, it's not the case. They did not really have a good relationship with Herod. But it's because when Herod's uh, uh, power was threatened, he reacted violently, even would kill his own family members if he had a sense of, at all that his power was under threat. He was disturbed and terrified and ruled with the sense of a despotic kind of uh, insidious, kind of power-hungry, quick to kill anyone that wasn't in alignment with him. And so he was disturbed here because he knows that he does not belong. He's not born of the Jews. He's from, uh, he's an Edomite, and even Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about him as like, he's only half Jew, he's not really part of us, he shouldn't be there, and I think he kind of knows he shouldn't be there, and is clinging tightly to what's around him. So that's another sign too, even when you think of human authorities that would represent Jesus, or that we would filter through the lens of Jesus, is there a sense of leading with a sense of fear and insecurity, always quick to hold tightly, could not endure any kind of threat or criticism because they're terrified of some power or prestige or self-image they might lose. That is like a healthy filter. Notice, as the person in authority here, I'm telling you, you should evaluate me through all these lenses. If you see me doing that, reacting to criticism, being hyper-defensive, responding out of a sense of fear and insecurity, anything that could feel like a threat, reacting that way, that is not the kind of authority with which King Jesus operates. So King Herod is threatened, and when he's threatened, he reacts with, uh, with lots of violence, and therefore people around him are also nervous. And so then he responds, he calls together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law because as not a true member of the people of God, he actually doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know where the king's supposed to be born. And so he needs to solicit some experts that will give him some clarity so that he can find where this Messiah is going to be. All right, go to my next uh, series of verses here. So now we see a bunch of qualities of Jesus that make him the true king and that make him a worthwhile king. Human beings need authority, but we need good authority, and we can see how Jesus has that. For starters, he's rooted in what the prophet has written about him, that Jesus is in line with the scriptures. True, faithful, God-ordained authority is in line with the scriptures. There can't be a thought of like, well, the scriptures have been abused and used for harm. Therefore, the only kind of authority we're trusting in is one that's willing to throw that out. Jesus as a true authority is a fulfillment of what God has been doing throughout the people of God's history, what he has been doing in scripture. He has inspired the history contained within scripture, and he has ordained the prophets that are wrote about him. And so these prophets say... Uh, this is kind of a quoted blend of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. He says, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this mention of that Bethlehem is by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. It's that Bethlehem is among the smallest clans. What have been thrown out is not as, as a, a valuable. It's not a sense of obvious power. And that is another sign of the true king is humble, from humble beginnings and humble origins. This passage also mentions the word child like four or five different times in just a few verses that God doesn't need to flex a presumptuous arrogance with his authority. He can operate from a sense of humility, choosing the little people of Israel and from a little clan within the little people of Israel, a child who would rule the whole world. 
There's not a sense of obvious power grabbing. He could have been much more clear, obvious, big, strong, a sign of strength. But instead, he rules from a sense of humility, from a sense of lowering himself to include all people, lowering himself to serve. We have that hints toward how the rest of the New Testament would unfold, that the way in which Jesus would become king is by dying a gruesome death on the cross, assuming the death, as Philippians 2 says, of a bond slave and God raising him up. So there's a humility versus Herod's kind of presumptuous arrogance, uh, a, a, presum- a presumed expectation that he should be there and belong. And so he's a fulfillment of scriptures, a fulfillment of the prophets, He falls in line with the the, the line of David coming out of Bethlehem. He truly belongs there. And then we see this great blend of a ruler and a shepherd. If you just see only ruler, you can imagine we put our images in mind of what a ruler looks like. Strength, power, domination, domineering, controlling, sovereign, stiff, hard, leaves no room for compassion or for softness, but he's a ruler who will shepherd his people. Now, I I don't work with livestock. Maybe Marilyn could help us understand how to work with some goats and stuff like that, but you know that the biblical image of a shepherd is one who cares tenderly for sheep who are dumb, (laughs) who are incapable of surviving well on their own, and their survival is dependent on the shepherd who would look out for them. And we see images of a shepherd who cares deeply for his sheep, who will stay up all night to guard and protect them, who has a sense of sacrifice. And Jesus says of himself later that he's the good shepherd who would sacrifice and lay down his life for the sheep, who cares tenderly for them. He's compassionate for the sheep. He makes sure he feeds them, provides for them, protects them. He knows what the sheep need better than the sheep know what they need, and he acts ahead of them, even anticipating them to respond to that. And when the sheep are threatened by enemies, by threats from the outside, the shepherd risks his life to save them and to protect them and and stares down and faces down those enemies, even facing his own wounds for that, which is, of course, a precursor to the way in which Jesus would be the true good shepherd and would die. This is the kind of authority that we need the only one we would ever need, who would satisfy all of our needs and rule us with gentleness, but with power. It's not a shepherd that is just weak, that cares a lot, but can't be effective. He cares deeply, he's compassionate, and he's humble, but he can, from that place of humble protection, stare down and face down and rule over any enemy that would ever threaten it. This is the only kind of king worthy of our true uncritical allegiance, our total open-handed submission, our acknowledgement that he is the one that we ultimately need as the frail people of God. And so I can, I've mentioned in this Advent season, in this time between times while we wait on God to restore our things, we are face down with our frailty. It's, it's obvious to us. Our vulnerability, we age, we get sick, we get hurt, we get harmed. We can face not having enough. We can experience hunger and thirst and anxiety and fear and depression. And our temptation is to be like Herod and to control and to squeeze tightly and to push out those who are different than us and to freak out at every kind of threat. But if we have Jesus as our true shepherd, there's a sense of humble release that he knows what we need better than we do, and that even if we suffer, he is with us, suffering with us, and promises that that is not the end. 
So we can trust with a sense of peace that he's got our best interests in mind as our good shepherd, and he will rule over and protect us. And he does all this as a fulfillment of scriptures from the Davidic line, that what God has always been doing and said he would do, he ultimately fulfills. He belongs. All other authority is filtered through Jesus as the true authority. But Herod doesn't like that. Go to the next slide. Herod's the false king trying to squeeze tightly to what he has and gets into this position of manipulative control. It says, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared. That word secretly has a sense of purposely behind the back. He doesn't want his true motives to be seen. He doesn't want anyone to be aware of his scheming and plotting because he's got plans. And what are those plans? He says, go and find the child and find him and let me know so that I too may go and worship him. That's really why I would like to know at this secret meeting. We know full well what he's going to try to do. He wants to kill that baby. And we're going to see in the next week the extent to which he will try to do that. And so he has this insidious, conniving way of reflecting his authority. That in this position of power, he can't afford to give an inch. And so he will cling tightly to it. It's ultimately self-centered. He doesn't rule as a shepherd seeking to take interest in those around him and even expand to bless those far off. It's squeezed tightly and narrow just around him and whoever will look up to him. And there's a temptation, that's what I see, of Christians that will do everything they can to protect this kind of person. That if they're in leadership and they promise their protection too, we can't have anything bad said about that person because we need to keep them propped up. But it's ultimately self-centered rule. One that is secretive, that lies, one that's manipulative and tries to control the situation, and one that ultimately is only about him. Herod uses his authority for himself and abuses other people in the process. When we, we should look hard to see when human authorities are tempted to do this and question it and let ourselves ask a hard question. Even people we love dearly. I can be vulnerable for a moment here. My last church... I had a great boss for, for a long time, but it ended very poorly. Don't worry, the elders know full well that whole story. They check things out. You may surprise you that Todd was kind of thorough and made sure we checked all things out. But I'm learning lots from it still. But it's a, it's a reminder that, man, even these people that I was so aligned with, tightest person with, this, with my boss and my leader, that, that anyone else of the church, very close, dear friend. And yet, to start to see, like, man, there are a lot of people being hurt here. And am I going to, to, to kind of lie to protect and shield what is there and give a false sense of stability instead of facing down, man, is there not something that's unhealthy here? Am I going to be willing to risk my career and my friendship to ask a hard question? I had lots of sleepless nights in 2020, not because of the pandemic, but navigating that tension. And I still, to this day, am like, I don't know if we handled that right. I don't know if I handled that right. God help me, please. Because it's difficult to navigate. Herod seems obvious. We read the text here, it's like, yeah, he's a bad man. But it's hard to, when you are up close and personal with people that you love dearly and you have even experienced some positive from their leadership to still know that humans are capable of self-deception. Big time. Like, driven by that. <laughs> and that if humans are left to their devices and not questioned and not asked, like, not seen through the lens of how Jesus operates with a sense of, like, they are capable of harm. If we don't do that, like, there's always room for someone that's going to hurt the saints. And so there has to be a sense of mutual 
kind of support, but mutual challenge to keep leaders in check from reacting out of anxiety to manipulate and control the situation just for themselves. I think that's all I have to say on that one. Let's go on to the next bit. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Let's get now to the wise men. Next chapter. True worship of the true king. The wise men show a healthy response to King Jesus' authority, his authority as a good ruler and a good shepherd. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And that translation is kind of weak because some are like, they were overwhelmingly exceeding with great joy. I mean, it's like joy on joy on joy. That in their looking and searching for a good, faithful, compassionate, but strong king, they have found one and they are drawn to him and they know in their hearts there must be some kind of supernatural revelation that he is that special to come and respond to this child with a sense of rejoicing and joy. And we have this deal when we encounter Jesus and are able to kind of disentangle the mess that is uh, Christianity in our culture to see Jesus for who he is as a compassionate shepherd, a good king, who is strong in protecting us, but who loves us dearly, it can capture our hearts and lead us to respond with great joy. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Worship is a theme in this passage. It talks about paying him homage again and again and again, and that is the sense of like true and whole submission and obedience to. That is like how sheep respond to a shepherd. It is a total bowing down and open-handed, ready to receive and release. To say, this good shepherd knows what I need. I will trust him, even if it goes against my instincts. So that's a push against the, I don't need authority. I have my own authority. I don't need the church. I don't need church leaders. I don't need scholars. I don't need the Bible. I don't need people that write books about this stuff. I can have it for me. This has a sense of, no, I'm not enough. I need to depend on Jesus from the outside and let him reframe all that. And so they bow down and have a posture of whole submission and surrender and obedient trust to Jesus as a worthwhile authority. And that worship wasn't just feigning a worship with their bodily bowing down. They actually respond with sacrificial gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that were all worth quite a bit in the ancient world. They, that's why some pastors refer to them as like, kings because only kings can possess this kind of material they sacrificially lay that at his feet it kind of would make a bible reader think back to the queen of sheba coming to see solomon's glory and giving him lots of gifts because she's so impressed by his uh his authority his glory and so they actually have a sacrificial offering which gets to kind of todd's uh, talk about generosity that flows from worship generosity is not just oh we have to do that thing to keep the organization going it's when we encounter the true king who has given us and promised to give us everything we could possibly need, fully protecting and providing for us, we are ready to give him our all and say, man, you just take it all because I trust that when I give it all to you, you will sort out how to give it back and who to give it back to and what I will need from my pile. Let you have the pile. Let you have my whole body and my whole heart. Let you have my future and my agenda. Here's my best stuff. It can be yours because I trust that you know it better than me and you're going to be good with how you respond to it. I think we sometimes encounter Jesus and saying, Ugh, 
I think I trust him, kinda. I'm gonna keep him at a nice distance. I like him okay, but I'm gonna guard my stuff a little bit and some of what's most dear to my heart because he's not ready to receive it. This is like, man, I'm overjoyed because he responds to my deepest needs for a true caring authority. He responds to my vulnerability and my frailty with passion and love. And so there's a, a whole self-worship, whole self-submission to the true authority. And then they're warned in the dream not to go back to Herod. We have to wonder that up until now, were they pretty naive about Herod's intentions? Yeah, okay, we'll go find the king for you. We'll come right back and report to you. But now, having worshiped to Jesus and surrendered to him, Jesus reframes their relationship with all other authorities to where now... Jesus, through Jesus' lens, they see Herod differently. He can't be trusted, and they have to watch for that. And that's kind of what I've been saying all along here, is that when we have Jesus, when we properly submit to him and worship him, he reframes how we see and use our own authority. Where if you were to have authority, there should be a sense of fear and trepidation for your potential to abuse it. I spent my Friday reading... Uh, I'm going to butcher this. I was just trying to YouTube how to pronounce this word. I can't, I can't pronounce it. It's Gregory of Nazianzus. He was an archbishop in the 300s, and he wrote a very long thing about, he tried, he was called the priesthood and ran from it. <laughs> I can relate. He's like, forget that, I'm out. And he comes back, and he writes out all why he was tempted to run and how the impossible task of carrying this authority under God's authority, and knowing how impossible it is to do well, and he had a sense of healthy reverence and fear and trepidation for the role. That's who you want to lead. If you're ever thinking, like, who's going to be a next elder, what kind of staff member, you almost want someone who doesn't quite want it because it's terrifying. That's who you want because they step into it with a sense of open-handed frailty, knowing they could ruin some stuff, and that they know themselves enough that they are weak enough that they can ruin some things if they don't have someone around them that will ask them hard questions and pay attention to what they're doing. And that kind of spirit for us all, not of suspicion, not of cynicism, not of I presume the worst in you, it's not that. It's I presume the best in you, but also I know your potential because you're human. And you have in you what's also in me, and I know how I would do. <laughs> we will be all kinds of temptations. And so we should see all authorities with that sense of they are God's image, and God has placed them there. And so there's a degree of, uh, of hoping for the best, but grasping the potential for harm, the potential for self-deception, the potential to react with anxiety, and having that sense of of open hand and letting them go, that there may be a time where we have to ask hard questions and, and avoid our allegiances, that our allegiance to Jesus may reframe how we relate to people we otherwise would have trusted previously. And we need that big time right now where online life takes over. And I read this week that we consume 100,000 words a week with all of our online and radio activity and all that kind of stuff. And that is the amount of two books. That's how much material we're encountering. And that's much of people that are claiming some kind of authority and say of our lives that we need help to filter well and to know who to put at a distance and who to watch out for around us. And we need community to do that. This is not you go do this on your own with the help of Google and Instagram. It's like, here's some real life flesh and blood people. I know them. I see their lives. I watch how they are with their kids and their jobs and their church. And we can together discern, do we trust that authority? We are thinking about reading that book or thinking about looking at this guy or reading this article. Do we trust them? Why? How do we work this out? And sorting that out together to know 
that with Jesus as our only fully trustworthy authority, a lot beneath that has potential to do great harm. And so that's, that's what we do in the season of Advent and waiting. But we wait for the true king to set things right and to tear down and judge all unhealthy abuses of authority and heal the ways in which we mess it up. Because we're going to mess it up. But if there's some spirit of humility and willing to apologize, God can do a lot with that kind of spirit. So God, Jesus starts out his ministry with an encounter with a false king, and he ends his life with an encounter of a false king, of, of Pilate, who is Caesar's representative. And just like right here, we have Gentiles referring to him as king of the Jews. He'll have another group of Gentiles refer to him as king of the Jews when they put him on a cross. And they'll bless him with the crown of thorns and mock him with that title, King of the Jews. And then when he dies, instead of having the bright, shining, illuminating uh, star in the sky, it'll be covered with an unseasonable darkness that reigns for the earth as God himself dies on that cross. But God would raise Jesus from the dead and give him the authority over all the heavens and all the earth and 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 a promise that every knee would eventually bow down to him. And so we move into communion with that sense of trust, that he is the final authority and will call everything else to light. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we trust that you are indeed the only authority we could ever need and ever want and ever long for. Totally worth trusting you are good. May you reframe how we relate to human authorities. May you give us a healthy spirit of of trust, but also holding at a distance, and that you would guide the ways in which um, we use our own authority and respond to human authorities. We need your help with that. In Jesus' name I pray.